Hello and welcome to Public Health Cafe, a podcast that shares stories and current events happening in public health in Canada. We are excited to host this podcast as a forum for discussion on all things public health related, with the goal of highlighting the Canadian perspectives. Thank you for tuning in. We are your hosts, Yuan and Manal. Today we'll be chatting about HIV and housing security. People living with HIV often face stigma and discrimination, which may significantly affect their mental health and well-being, as well as financial security and stable housing. Before we start this episode, we want to acknowledge that none of us have lived experience with HIV, and therefore our conversation may not represent all the realities that people living with HIV face. So we wanted to recognize that gap in our conversation today, but hopefully we can bring that perspective in our future podcast episodes. Joining us today is Katie, who has a background in social work and is currently working in the field of HIV and housing security at the McLaren Housing Society of British Columbia. Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we start the conversation, would you like to tell us about yourself and the organization that you work with? Yeah, definitely. Well, first, thanks for having me here. I'm really excited to um, to chat with you both. Um, yeah, so I work at McLaren Housing Society of BC. We're based um, here in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, and we provide subsidized housing, affordable housing for people living with HIV. Um, we have kind of a, a spectrum of housing available. So it starts from our fully supportive, directly managed building, uh, which is called House Street, uh, our Homkin Street building as well. And then I personally manage our portable rental subsidies, meaning folks can get kind of a smaller pocket of money that will go toward their rent, um, but then can pursue market rental housing in the community of their choice. Um, so that's definitely the gist of what I do, but <laughs> there's obviously a lot more to it. Yeah, thank you so much, Katie, for this wonderful introduction. I'm just on McLaren Housing Society's website right now. It seems like they're doing so much wonderful work. They're not just about providing shelters and houses for folks who are affected by HIV, but it's actually more about providing a healthy and inclusive community. Not to mention that McLaren Housing was actually founded in 1987, which was the first HIV AIDS housing providers in Canada. I'm sure working with so many resilient people in the field of HIV and housing is so rewarding. But I'm just curious, what draws you to work in this field in the first place? So my background since graduating with my social work degree um, was initially in homelessness. So in Halifax, where I'm from, I, uh, I worked at an emergency shelter for men. I loved it. Um, and it became pretty clear really early on, and I was fortunate that it, that it was, but clear that that was what I was passionate about. Um, I saw the need uh, for housing. I saw how desperately difficult it is to secure housing when you are facing multiple barriers. Um, I also did some work at a legal aid clinic in Halifax, did a lot of work with um, appeals around residential tenancy. So people being unlawfully evicted or people dealing with chronic health conditions and no longer being able to pay their rent. I mean, it's endless. There are so many reasons why people's housing can be impacted. Um, So really early on, it just opened up a whole world for me of uh, 
of work that I could be doing. Uh, and it's work that I just very much enjoy. So when I came to Vancouver, I got this job with McLaren Housing Society. And that's when I started working in the field of HIV, as well as housing. Um, so it's a newer field for me. I've been here oh, about a year and a half with McLaren. Uh, but in that time, yeah, I have learned so much <laughs> about both communities, um, the HIV community and uh, working with folks who have been experiencing homelessness and uh, struggled with housing security. Oh, wow. That's really impressive. It seems like you have extensive working experience in the housing sector, not only in Vancouver, but also in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And yeah, housing has such a significant impact on a person's life. And like you mentioned, so many different factors can affect a person's ability to secure housing. Before we get into how HIV status can affect a person's ability to access secure housing, um, do you mind briefly explaining what HIV is and what AIDS is? I'm sure for a lot of people, including myself, we've heard the two words so many times, but just never really fully understand what they are and what differentiate those two. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'll, I'll preface with, I'm certainly not a medical professional or expert um, in any way, but um, I can give you a very basic um, definition. HIV is essentially a virus. It stands for human immunodeficiency virus. And basically what it is, is when you do contract the virus of HIV, it attacks the healthy cells in your body. Um, if that infection goes on for too long, and if it affects many of your cells, it keeps your body from being able to fight off infections that if you were healthy, um, your body would quite easily move out of your body in, the, in a natural way. Um, so that's what AIDS is. It's when the virus has overtaken the body and you're no longer able to, um, to fight off infection. Um, and that's where we see a lot of illnesses now with folks who do have HIV. If your viral loads are quite high, um, again, your immune system is greatly compromised. Um, so that's where the, the real illnesses come is when you're no longer able to, to use your immune system effectively. Um, yeah, that leads to the next question I have for you. So from your work experience, I know you've only been with the organization for a year and a half, but can you tell us a bit more information on the current HIV situation in BC? Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, HIV can affect anyone, of course. Like, it's not just one demographic. Um, however, in BC, we do see that males do tend to have HIV at higher rates than, than females do. Um, about, I think it's around 60% of HIV infection rates in BC are um, men who have sex with men. Uh, and then about 7%, I believe, this study was from 2016, but at that time, about 7% of HIV infections were made up of folks who use drugs intravenously. Um, so those are probably the two largest demographics that we see here in British Columbia. Mm -hmm. um, but then of course, I mean, women, children, anyone can contract HIV. Mm. And kind of following up on that question, what would you say are some evolving issues that folks living with HIV face today? Mm. So it's, yeah, that's a good question. It's a big question, again, because it, it, HIV can affect so many different people um, and people come from such different backgrounds and situations. And if we started getting into social determinants of health, I mean, then we, we really do see that different people are impacted differently, depending on what resources and supports you have around you. Um, if we're talking about a population of people experiencing 
homelessness or housing insecurity, um, and this is my opinion and, and largely anecdotal, but access to healthcare is the number one priority once someone has been um, infected with HIV. You want to get to undetectable, untransmittable, and that requires very intensive communication and time spent with medical professionals. Um, and if you don't have a phone number or a home address or a health card, those are steps that are going to be very, very challenging for you to take to uh, maintain wellness and health. Um, and you know what? Even people who do have housing and, and even financial stability, making those appointments and, and such vigorous health care um, is challenging on anybody in the best of circumstances. So there are a lot of barriers kind of already in place um, for people experiencing any chronic health uh, conditions, but HIV especially um, is, is not immune to that. Uh, and then the stigma, which is a whole other, whole other barrier and topic that I would, I would include in that um, challenge that's evolving for folks, um, particularly here in BC and in, in Vancouver. Yeah, I can imagine stigma and discrimination against people who are affected by HIV can be such a huge topic, um, especially when it comes to the intersectionality of things, just adding layers such as recent ethnicity, sexual orientation, employment status, and so many other things. And like you mentioned, finding affordable housing in Vancouver is difficult for all of us. And I can't even imagine how difficult that can be adding all the other different layers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, I'm glad you mentioned that too, because the housing crisis has certainly not made that easier on anybody. Mm -hmm. And we know that people with unstable housing have, um, have poor health outcomes. And that's, I mean, we, we just know that for anybody struggling with any kind of chronic health condition, housing really is one of the most important factors in, in maintaining wellness and, and health. So without it, it's extremely challenging and a, and a massive barrier for people in Vancouver with such uh, low vacancy rates. I think it's at like 1% right now in Vancouver. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that naturally leads to the next question. Why might people living with HIV face additional challenges when they try to find affordable and accessible housing or living independently? There's a lot of, I'd say there's a lot of pieces to that. So first, like you say, finding affordable housing, period. So if you are living with HIV and are unable to work, for example, if you're living on disability or, or ministry support, um, obviously you're living on a very, very limited income. Mm. So even having the ability to secure a place in Vancouver or in the Fraser Health region that's affordable and close to your health resources and your doctors and these these places you need to be going regularly, um, that's extremely challenging. Um, so that I would say that would probably be the biggest barrier, um, the affordability and the the location because perhaps you can find something, you know, past Chilliwack and it's within your budget, certainly, but if all of your resources and your, your doctors, like Dr. Peter Center or the JRC or is Vancouver, like all these amazing resources that we have here, if you're too far away from them, then it, it's really, it puts people in a difficult position. Ultimately, folks sometimes need to choose between proximity to their services and their supports to finding something that they can afford much further away. Mm. Are um, most of the HIV-related resources located in downtown Vancouver? Uh, so I, 
I don't, I, I want to say I don't know only because my work is centered in Vancouver. So yeah. all the ASOs that I know of, largely know of, are, are based in Vancouver. Um, but even things like St. Paul's Hospital and, and like really reputable services, again, the JRC, the John Rudy Clinic, those are renowned across the country and I, they are centralized in Vancouver. So, I mean, to that extent, I would say yes, Vancouver is pretty well stocked with with services, especially in the medical uh, and health and wellness side of things, particularly compared to a lot of the rest of the country. Mm. Um, so yeah, but I, I can't speak like very confidently about what the rest of, of British Columbia has in terms of aid service organizations. Totally. Accessibility and proximity to health services is so crucial for a lot of folks who are dealing with chronic illnesses and health issues. Uh, just out of curiosity, uh, does McLaren host a lot of newcomers or immigrants? Yeah, so I, I don't have a statistic for you, um, but yes, we do. Um, we have done some work with uh, an organization called Rainbow Refugees. Um, they're, I don't know if you've heard of them, mm. uh, but they I don't have their information in front of me, so I don't want to speak <laughs> for them, but check them out online. Um, but they're a great organization that we've um, we've worked with for a bit. It's newer, but I've, I've just learned about them since working with them here, and they've been excellent. They work with with newcomers, people that have come here um, under refugee status. Um, and yeah, so I mean, we get referrals from from all over. We have a huge waiting list, like like everywhere else in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, we work with people from every walk of life. Um, so that's been really interesting. Again, for me, I've just met so many different kinds of people and from all walks of life. Yeah, that's yeah really nice. I want to give a shout out to Rainbow Refugee. They're really great. When I used to work at Lush, uh, those were like one of their charity partners. So that's how I learned about them. And I'll just read off of their website um, what they do. Uh, so they're a Vancouver-based community group that supports people seeking refugee protection in Canada because of persecution based on sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, or HIV status. And they've done some really amazing work in yeah. Vancouver. So uh, just pivoting back a little bit to housing, because I know, Katie, you mentioned that you've worked in housing in Nova Scotia mm-hmm. and B.C., so I was curious to know if you see like any parallels between the two provinces or their opportunities to learn from each other. Yes, yes. Um, I, so I don't know if, if you two have been kind of following any of the news in Nova Scotia, but homelessness in Nova Scotia is absolutely on the rise. Um, numbers are just higher than I believe they've ever been. Uh, and that ultimately just comes down to this housing crisis with vacancy rates the same as Vancouver, costs going up constantly, condos going up all the time um, at prices that the average Nova Scotian cannot afford. Um, so all of that together, unfortunately, it just it's, it's a lot of what we've already been seeing here in Vancouver for years and years and years. So, I mean, there are a lot of amazing workers and folks on the ground in Nova Scotia, and a lot of them I've worked with personally. So I'm, I'm optimistic. And I'm confident, um, but if I'm being honest, I'm very worried um, about the state of things in Halifax right now, um, just because we see what happens in a city that doesn't have enough affordable housing. Um, and I mean, homelessness, we know, leads to very, very poor health, health outcomes. Um, so yeah, I am worried. Um, I do see similarities. Um, 
Although Halifax is also much smaller, Nova Scotia is much smaller. So there are differences, but again, with similar vacancy rates and with similar cost of housing, the cost of housing going up in Halifax, I, uh, it's concerning for sure. I, it, it needs early intervention and it needs government cooperation and participation. They just need more affordable housing, just like we do here in Vancouver. Yeah, like you mentioned, housing is a social determinant of health. It's not only a shelter, it's like your home, your sense of space, your sense of dignity. If a stable housing permanent home is removed from your life, I can imagine your whole world just being shattered. Exactly, and not just from their homes, but from their resources and their communities. And all of those things, again, are going to contribute to a, a more positive health outcome. Um, so it's so much more, when someone is displaced like that, it's so much more than losing their home. You know, it's more than four walls. It, it really is a support network that you've been removed from. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it's a much bigger issue than just a physical house. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, it, it's like, I think I mentioned earlier, but if you don't have a fixed address or a phone number or you know, a phone, making appointments is not, mm. it, it's not possible. It's really not. I struggle to make my appointments and I, I have all of those things, you know, it's just, there's so many more barriers that get piled on top of you without just that basic need of, of secure and stable housing. It, it impacts every part of a person's life. Absolutely. When you were mentioning Katie, Katie about, yeah, like finding affordable housing, but it's like, all the way like in the middle of nowhere um and like that community piece is so important especially when you're already like marginalized and uh, you know you feel ostracized from like what we call quote unquote the general population your community is so important the people around the people who uplift you and yeah it's so much more than just a physical house because you are as you as we mentioned like folks are being priced out of their communities their neighborhoods and being forced to like you know go somewhere they can afford but like be totally isolated from the community or not even have like close to where they work or the services like health or otherwise um, which is really important to consider as well. Absolutely and I mean we see time and again the people that are going to be impacted by that ultimately by things like gentrification and, and being moved from your home are racialized communities and and marginalized communities. So there's a whole other piece, that colonialism piece that comes into that as well. So again, it's not just the housing, it's not just the community, but then it's it's cultures um, and it's it's people's, yeah, people's identities. Um, So there is, there's just so much to that. And we've seen that all over the country, all over North America is communities with people that have just been completely broken up um, in the name of, of development and, and businesses, which I, I mean, there's a place for those things, but not at the cost of somebody's um, cultural identity and support network and just overall wellness. Um, yeah, I, that's another one I could go on about for, for a while. Yeah, it was like colonialism and capitalism. How long <laughs> yeah. do we have? <laughs> As we all know that the pandemic has forced a lot of services to find alternative ways of delivery, such as online, telephone calls, and shipment. So I'm wondering, how has this pandemic changed people who are affected by HIV, their access 
two services. What are some of the additional challenges and do you see any opportunities here? Yeah, so I mean, yes. I mean, bottom line is, yeah, adapting to virtual as opposed to nothing is excellent. I mean, it's still something that folks can use and it does sort of depend on the resource um, and the person. And that's, again, what's, what can be tricky because, again, we work with a huge spectrum of, of folks. We work with a lot of seniors, um, and not to say at all that all seniors don't manage technology, but we know that it, it does tend to be the millennials and, and younger generations that are quite savvy with Zoom and mm -hmm. Skype and FaceTime. And so a lot of the resources that traditionally we would have in the community and in person have now adapted to virtual things like Zoom, which is great. But for some of our more senior folks, um, that can be really challenging One, if you don't have a computer, um, let alone knowing how to use the technology or the software. Um, and then things just like internet access. Again, we work with a lot of folks who are on pretty limited income. So not everyone has Wi-Fi, really. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are folks in the community that will go to McDonald's or they'll go to Tim Hortons um, to access the Wi-Fi that they need. But of course, that's not a reliable or consistent um, way to get what you need. So people are definitely struggling um, where there were such excellent resources here um, just for the uh, for the community piece even so that the isolation we're seeing is is very challenging and to be honest going into the winter months where things get darker and mm. colder a little more isolated anyway on top of covid um, we're really seeing the isolation piece as as a challenge so yes a lot of the services have adapted to, to other methods, but it's not a, a catch-all by any means. I think there are still some gaps that we're going to need to uh, to get creative on um, just to make sure that we're, we're reaching everybody. And kind of continuing on like the COVID-19 pandemic, um, you know, we have seen some like rental freezes in general in like mental, Metro Vancouver. But I'm curious to know how has this pandemic specifically affected uh, folks who live with HIV, like their ability to like, you know, independent housing uh, and things like mm -hmm. that. Like in terms of their, their health and just their ability to live independently? Be able to or be able to get housing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Within so this pandemic. Totally. So, um, and not just folks with HIV, but securing housing in a pandemic is incredibly difficult, period, um, especially in Vancouver. Um, but you know what? Other cities are, are starting to be the same as well. Like we see in Halifax, vacancy rates are about the same as they are here in Vancouver. Very scary um, and concerning. So, yes, it is very difficult to rent in this time. Um, and in terms of just living independently, I mean, the folks that I work with are some of the most resilient and um, competent and strong people that I, I have ever known. Um, so, and then living independently, other than someone's health declining quite severely, I mean, living independently is fine. Um, but again, it comes back to the, the health piece. So if you're not well, if you do find you're needing more support, um, especially for the population that's aging, Um, we do see transition into long-term care, um, which is also challenging during a pandemic because we know that the long-term care facilities are very much struggling um, right now. So it's, 
not just affecting, like I said, folks who are living with HIV, but it is certainly adding to the challenges that they already face and the barriers that they're already uh, experiencing now. So, yeah, I, I mean, the housing, it's possible. It's not only impossible to secure housing in Vancouver, but throwing COVID on top of an already very difficult housing market has, has made it much, much more challenging. Um, and I, and you mentioned that the, a lot of folks that you work with um, that are very resilient, and I was interested interested to know more about that. Especially, I'm assuming that a lot of them have lived through another epidemic before, and how that's been like. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because it's been such a privilege for me to to hear the stories of survivors. Um, and you're right. So we, we do work with quite a few seniors. Many of them, all of the seniors, lived through the 80s, um, whether or not they had HIV at the time, although many of them did. Um, so they lived through that crisis. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hearing two different things from folks. On the one hand, when I check in with some people, they'll say, I've lived through this before, so I'm, I'm prepared <laughs> to deal with COVID. It's, it's similar to them in a lot of ways. So they feel... Well, other people around them are quite nervous and concerned. It's something that they have experienced. And there's almost like an empowerment that comes from that. Um, and again, because they've survived so much for so long. Um, but then on the other side, there are folks who are feeling very distressed and, and traumatized, re-traumatized um, from an incredibly traumatizing time in history. Um, so there are a lot of parallels uh, between COVID today and the the crisis of the 80s with HIV and AIDS. Um, so that's been very challenging. And I mean, everyone experiences these times differently. So it's been very interesting um, to hear those stories and how people react differently to, to what's happening right now in our communities and the way that health information is passed on and comparing the way things were dealt back in that time to the way that they're being dealt with uh, today because they are very, very different. Uh, and so that's, yeah, a very interesting piece. And I could talk about that for, for days. But it's um, the seniors in particular, the ones who have lived through, through that time, and not just seniors, I guess the 80s wasn't that long ago. Um, but the older folks that we work with do have such a unique perspective um, having lived through both. Um, so yeah, it's, I've learned a lot in the last couple of months. Yeah, I can imagine uh, going through the pandemic right now and the epidemic 30, 40 years ago, there can be some similarities. And like right now and back then, those two are newly emerged diseases. There are so much uncertainties and people don't know anything about it. So the response to it at first, of course, is panic. I was uh, listening to some podcasts on HIV before our recording, just so I can get a bit more information. So there was a a woman, a really, really strong woman, she was affected by HIV in the early 90s. And she was saying, oh, there was so much stigma, discrimination against her. And, and it was very difficult for her to travel too, because she wanted to go to the States and it was illegal to go into the States back then. And she wanted to have kids, but it was very discouraged for HIV positive women to have kids. Just because back then, information on HIV was so limited. And that's where all the negative stereotypes and stigma comes in because just because something folks don't understand they're afraid of their uncertainty i can imagine people who live through the epidemic right now they're seeing some similarities where um, people are just panic 
um, mostly because there is so much uncertainty. Yeah, really what comes down to it is really good information and good public health leadership skills. I completely agree with you. I think it's so interesting in these times of instant information and social media and technology and instant messaging is that information travels so quickly, but that also means false information travels just as quickly. So So true. In a time of much we don't know, there's a lot of great information coming out there on how to manage this this pandemic and, and to be healthy and well, but there's also a lot of conspiracy and a lot of misinformation that ultimately just adds to the stigma and to dangers in our community, I think. So it's, in that way, I think it's interesting to compare COVID to the, the initial HIV AIDS crisis in that there's so much more information out there and that it, it can sometimes mute or, or distort with the real, um, the true information is. The clear yeah. Important. <laughs> yeah, I've learned, I learned a new term called infodemic because it's so prevalent, just the misinformation, disinformation out there. It's just so confusing. Mm-hmm. That's so true. That's such a good point. And even like making like good evidence-based information, like digestible for like just everyday person is so important because this is like a lot of technical stuff like COVID with HIV. Like how do you make this accessible to just like everyone? And recently actually Fraser Health did um, like a series of Instagram posts that were really well in terms of their like, this is how one person who goes to say like a wedding can Mm -hmm. impact so many other people down the line and they really broke it down and I saw a lot of people sharing that because it really like highlighted you know like this is why we're asking you not to do this because look at how many other people this one person um, can uh, affect so yeah like effective communication is key and I totally agree with you Manal, like the the bite-sized information too like what can be digested by everybody because there is mm-hmm. And also not everyone that lives in Canada speaks English as a first language. You know, like there's also that piece um, and newcomers to our country. Like we need ways to synthesize information, to bite-sized pieces in multiple languages for, for Canadians. Ultimately, there's some good resources on the government website um, of like simple little posters about hand washing. And mm. like you were talking about the Instagram page. So there, there is information out there and we in, in housing, we've been talking about that too, not just aid service organizations, but housing in general. What information do you put up in the elevator on a poster or, you know, like what will people be receptive to? So there is a lot to that of messaging things in a way that empowers people, doesn't frighten people. Because ultimately the goal is just for everyone to be as healthy as possible. But mm-hmm. I do think with being overwhelmed with news and technology, sometimes it can just turn to confusion and fear when the goal is, of course, yeah, we just want clear messaging and to have everyone on the same page. Yeah, that's so true. Um, so yeah, like you mentioned, working in this field of HIV and housing security is very, very, very rewarding, but also challenging at times. So I'm wondering, what are some of your own self-care routines or activities during this challenging time? I used to work with um, this woman named Alyssa in, in Halifax. We worked in, in a shelter together. Um, and I'm crediting her with this because I didn't come up with this and she's the one who, who told me about it. But she compared self-care to something called self-soothing. Groundbreaking for me. Basically, there's room for both, but self-soothing will be things like binging a Netflix show that you've wanted to watch or 
eating some Ben and Jerry's, you know, like things, a bubble bath, going for a massage. Those are things that we can do to soothe ourselves in times of stress um, or just to relax or to treat ourselves. And that's great because we should be doing those things. Absolutely. So those are all things I do. Um, Self-care though is a lot more about taking care of yourself in a way that you can sustain the work that you're doing. That's the way I would describe it. So things like I go to my physio appointment. I don't want to, but that is a form of self-care that I make sure that I follow because I know it's what's good for me. And it's something that will keep me well in the work that I'm doing because burnout is very real. Um, and so if I'm not doing those things to take care of my, my basic, basic health, like drinking water and getting enough sleep and, and checking in on my own mental wellness, those are all things that I would classify as self-care. Um, but then I also make room for self-soothing because we're human and, and we should be enjoying life, even though things are very challenging right now. Um, so I would say both of those things together are, are really important. Uh, but that is, I think it's an important distinction that we make that, you know, binging Netflix every day is not ultimately going to be <laughs> self-care. Um, so true. You still need to prioritize your wellness and your, and your health. So that's different for everyone. Um, but like I said, for me, it's really just checking in on my, my triggers. And if I'm feel I'm reacting strongly to things, maybe in a way that I, I hadn't before, those are things that I check in on. Um, I make sure I, I see my counselor or my therapist on a regular ish basis. I mean, COVID makes that more challenging, um, but just prioritizing my mental and physical health, I would say is, is the number one thing for me to, to keep doing the work that I do because I love it. I, you know, it's not, the people or the work that that makes me burn out it's the systems that we work in I think that make us burn out because we're we're all just trying to figure out a challenging situation in a challenging time so just being gentle with each other and, and with myself um I think is is the way that I've I've been working through it and it, it's important to make those distinctions but also just like I said being kind to yourself when you are going to self-soothe, you know, give yourself, if you're going to do it, give yourself the permission mm -hmm. to enjoy it while you're recharging. Because again, mm -hmm. they're not bad things inherently. Mm -hmm. um, just give yourself the time to, to rest and enjoy yourself the way that you enjoy yourself. Um, and I think that's probably the best advice I could give to someone. Just be kind, like Dr. Bonnie Henry would say. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Um, I guess that's all the question that we have for you. Before we wrap up, do you have any other uh, comments or special shout outs you want to give? Shout out to the organization I work for, honestly, and, and all the housing workers, not just in Vancouver, but across the country. Housing is difficult, um, especially, like I said, in Vancouver and Halifax, but the work is good. Um, and I'm so grateful to be a part of it here. Uh, I've learned so much just since moving to BC. Um, and with World AIDS Day coming up on December 1st, um, I'd say even more so I'm, I'm very mindful of the history of HIV, especially in, in BC here. That, that's the history I've been learning a lot about lately. So the resiliency of the community that I work in, again, has just been such an honor to um, to be witness to. Uh, I've just met such incredibly strong and, and wonderful, lovely people here. Um, so if you're looking for more information on World AIDS Day, I would check out the United Nations website. They have a lot of really great information up there um, about World AIDS Day and just with some more education if you're, if you're looking to learn more about it. 
Thank you so much, Katie. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And we will be sure to link all the resources that we mentioned and the organizations like the McLaren Society and also Rainbow Refugee in our podcast show notes if you want to learn more. Um, And then also I wanted to mention, I was so glad that you uh, differentiated between self-soothing and self-care. I recently learned about it and um, I link an article by, I think it's by Dina Zant. Um, where they do a really good job of like distinguishing the two because for so long, like it's hard to sometimes distinguish, like, are you just soothing something or like taking care? Mm -hmm. And both of them have their place. So I'll also link that if listeners are interested in checking that out. Welcome back and let's get to public health related news. During this section, we will share and discuss current news stories relevant to public health in Canada. Today's article is titled, HIV AIDS Taught Us Not to Police a Disease Outbreak, Says Experts. Did the lesson stick? And this was written by Jane Gerstcher, published on Global News in May 2020. Uh, So the article, I will summarize it in a little bit, but I would suggest for our listeners to also perhaps go give it a read themselves as well. But basically it discusses the similarities between responses to both um, HIV epidemic 20 years ago and the pandemic now. Um, Some similarities that the article touches upon are, you know, how we have like this fixation on like the vaccine, like when is the vaccine coming out? Where's the project? Uh, Where's the progress? And that was like very much what was also experienced with um, HIV when I when it was at its height. And then similar uh, in the absence of vaccine, there's a lot of focus on preventative uh, behavior or behavior modification. So for example, um, in the terms of HIV, it was a lot of you know, condoms and more safer sex practices, harm reduction, and similarly, in terms of harm reduction with COVID-19 pandemic is, you know, like wearing PPE, masks, hand sanitizers, things like that. Um, and then the article goes on about like reflecting on what the AIDS and HIV epidemic taught us. And then a lot of it was, you know, looking at criminal justice responses and policing of responses are not always like the first or the best course of action because they can exacerbate the crises, especially for specific segments of the population. Folks who are already uh, marginalized can be further pushed away and the whatever disease you're trying to control can further disproportionately impact uh, those communities. And to that effect, we have seen this with COVID-19 here in Canada. Uh, you know, it is impacting more racialized communities, although Canada is really not good at collecting race-based data. So that's a little bit harder to map out. But we have seen that with like also uh, impacting more lower socioeconomic um, status communities. And in that sense, just like with HIV AIDS epidemic, we are failing to address those inequities um, and like being able to distinguish who is more vulnerable, who is protected. protected. Um, so we see a lot of similarities 
in that sense too. And again, like who is being policed, where the power is being abused, you can also see some of those similarities between the HIV AIDS epidemic and the pandemic that we're currently living through today. So yeah, I wanted to ask you both, what you, what did you think of the article? Anything that instantly stood out to you or spoke to you? Yeah, I really, so there's a line in the article where they say people are habituated to expect policing as a response, but that doesn't mean it should be. And I just, that resonated with me so strongly because that's absolutely the truth. You know, like I think even since COVID started, how many people do we know that say, where are the police? Let's ticket these people. Let's get it under control. And not to say that there, I, I don't know, maybe there's a place for that. But what we do know is that inappropriate policing of things only lends to more fear and more stigma and it just pushes things further down. Um, so that's what this article really kind of just highlighted for me. And again, we saw that with HIV and AIDS and it's so important. You, you talked about this earlier, but the messaging and the way that we're wording things, sorry, Manal, maybe you were talking about it. One of you were talking about the importance of, of language. And I think that that resonates with this very well. Policing doesn't mean anything if we're not educating people appropriately and um, giving them the full information so that they can make informed choices um, and to be as healthy as possible. So, yeah, I really, I, I think over policing and um, coming down hard on people who are just trying to navigate their health, again, just lends to more stigma and, and people not taking care of themselves as they should if more stigma is just thrown on top. Uh, there's another line in this article I really, I really loved. Abuse of power disproportionately impact racialized minorities, disabled people, and homeless people. I can't tell you how many times I have seen police ticket someone who does not have housing, um, for example, for drinking a beer in a parking lot. And sure, that's, it's against the law to drink in public, I do understand. But when we're policing people who don't have the basic right of four walls around them. I mean, people drink in their homes all the time. You know, like we we take for granted, I think, the the freedom that having four private walls gives us to to really just ultimately do what we want a lot of the time. So just as one example, the policing of people who experience homelessness, and again, that's disproportionately represented with Indigenous people, racialized communities, like you said, people with disabilities. So all these people who are being policed are going to be disproportionately represented um, simply because of the way that the, the system is set up. So it's, it's unfair right off the get-go to, um, to be policing um, over these things. So, Yeah, that's so true, because if police are policing certain groups, and in the media, we will just see the overrepresentation of certain group of people, quote unquote, breaking the law, uh, breaking the legislation, just not obeying. And that's not really helping with anybody. Because like you mentioned, not a lot of people have the luxury of roof over their head. And I guess same goes with um, enforcing masks. I can imagine people who are experiencing homelessness, they probably don't have access to masks the way we do. And yeah, and if we just police, like, force people to obey whatever law they that were enforced upon without being educated why they're doing it and how should we do it, and it just, it's not helpful for the public. I read an article, I think it was in the BBC, but it was a, a physician working at one of the refugee camps in Yemen, and he was talking about 
COVID. Um, and he talked about the extreme privilege of the concept of social distance. And I thought that that was extremely powerful because I had not considered it at all in the context of how I live. And then it got me thinking of the downtown east side and, and homeless shelters, emergency shelters. To, to expect that social distancing is possible in every context is so privileged and really problematic, actually. So we talk about compliance and policing, but we have such a luxury to be able to comply. And I think that's kind of the bottom line. And that's what this, this article really had me thinking about is just if you are able to comply with all of the, the Health Canada regulations around COVID, then you're likely an incredibly privileged person and, and should count yourself very fortunate. Yeah, that's so true. So true. Um, we were actually talking about the luxury of phys- being able to physical distance from others. Like not a lot of people can live, a, like just live by themselves, having just not having to deal with roommates, not having to deal with living with multi-generation family, like working from home. Not, not a lot of people can do that. And people are facing job insecurity as well because of COVID. And another um, uh, piece of the article that really resonated with me, with me was the piece around trust. Like when it comes to like compliance, you're going to listen to someone you trust. And as you both highlighted through a lot of different examples, like folks don't necessarily have a reason to trust police. They've done them dirty quite a few times, like in the past, in the present, probably in the future. So, you know, like, Putting policing as the front of public health messaging is kind of problematic because there's not that trust there in the first place and you're further disenfranchising those people when, yeah, like when it comes to healthcare services, there needs to be some sort of trust. Um, So like, yeah, like putting like say Dr. Bonnie Henry and like, like putting kind, compassionate communication like that way is so much more effective um, and meets people where they're at rather than like that top down approach and also one size fits all approach because you as you said like a lot of us are in like different circumstances some working from home some not so like what works for me might not work for you or you um, so like kind of catering approaches which is also important and yeah making sure that you're getting to the most vulnerable because it's so easily like sometimes I feel like it yeah you can make guidelines for the general population and not think about like specific pockets of community that are just because of the circumstances of their life just not privileged to comply quote unquote I think like ultimately policing and enforcement this is my opinion but that's that's not the way to be um communicating with any population with with any group of people I think Bonnie Henry, Dr. Bonnie Henry does a very good job of of reiterating the kindness piece and the calm piece. And I, she really is, I think, very wise for sharing that with us because in times of uncertainty, and like you both mentioned, the fear that gets stirred up during a pandemic or, or during times where things are unknown, we do turn to that fear piece. And I think that can lead to a lot more problems, um, than they solve. So, yeah, just reiterating, I think what the government needs to continue working on is finding ways to communicate information um, to everybody. And that's that's their responsibility. So, I mean, if somebody is unable to read, if somebody doesn't speak English, if somebody has poor vision, 
we need ways to be um, accommodating that for all, all types of people, all walks of life. The information needs to be there and accessible. I don't think just coming down with the, the heavy hand of the law is, is a solution to anything. Like you're saying, Manal, I think it re-stigmatizes and it just it further divides us. Um, so just clearly and calmly sharing information um, from a reliable source, I, I really do believe is, is the way that we're going to, uh, to get through this together. So true. Thanks, Katie, for sharing yeah. that and you as well. And then for our audience or listeners, I guess, <laughs> um, I will link the article in the show notes as well if you want to give it a read yourself. So thank you so much, Katie, for joining us today. And thanks to our listeners for listening and tuning in. You can find more information in our next episodes on Spotify, iTunes, or your favorite podcatcher. And you can follow us on Instagram at Public Health Cafe. We would love to hear your comments or if there's any topics you would like us to cover, be sure to connect with us. Um, And if not, you can rate us as well if you like and subscribe for more. And we hope to be back with another episode very soon. Bye.